Hello and welcome to Telling Stories. My name is Shane Street. This week we look at The Last of the Tudor Kings, an article as part of the Lancastrian series that I wrote for WrestleTalk TV several years ago. A lot of the best of British series has come from that particular uh, series of articles and my last episode was on what was perhaps then the last great Lancastrian and since then there's been some great Lancastrians that have come forward. But the man who kind of took that Lancastrian style to its absolute zenith as far as international penetration is concerned was William Regal or Steve Regal, depending on which era you come from. So today we're talking William Regal in The Last of the Tudor Kings. Opponent on my left in the blue corner at 18 years of age and starting with one fall in his favour. Ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome from Blackpool, Roy Regal. William Regal was initially trained by Bobby Barron, though from the very Midlands towns of Codstall and Staffordshire, it was Blackpool and its local wrestling scene that truly made William Regal. He moved to Bobby's working loop of holiday camps in and around the northwest coast in the early 80s. This was a summertime only affair, working odd jobs through the winter as a delivery man, factory worker and various other forms of casual work to pay his way through. By the time summer came around again, he'd be ready to continue his training and his wrestling back in Blackpool. As a young man, he was also influenced very heavily by the cabaret comedians that would fill the Tower Ballroom in various Blackpool venues. His second love, comedy, would have a strong bearing on his career, and after his second season with Bobby Barron, he was introduced to Max Crabtree. Realising he couldn't develop any further than he had done with Bobby, he moved on to joint promotions, while still taking bookings for Bobby, who actually paid more, not that Max knew about that. His first television match featured himself and his new trainer, Marty Jones. As Regal commented on the Steve Austin and Art of Wrestling podcasts, Marty had been putting a dojo together of sorts to lift the ability of some of the new workers in the company, such as Kid McCoy, a finishing school, if you will, often aided by Dave Finlay. This development helped push Regal through to the next level, specifically on TV, where he had a unique debut wrestling Marty in a best of three-fourths match in which he had a one-fall advantage. The gimmick worked, enabling the younger, less experienced opponent to seem a threat to the mid-heavyweight champion of the world. It was, during the phase, it was during this phase of his career that he began to ponder his future. He was still growing, not yet quite 20, and realised his initial dream of being a technically-minded player like Marty Jones, Mark Rocco or the Dynamite Kid was unlikely to happen if he topped out as he did at 6'3", and be as naturally big as he actually was. As he looked around, he noticed certain wrestlers were not always in the UK. There was, in fact, an international circuit that offered great paydays for British wrestlers if they had the goods to sell. He changed his focus somewhat and aimed at being the traditional British heavyweight that was actually quite in demand around the world. Men like Tony St. Clair, Terry Rudge and Pete Roberts were rarely home long enough to make an impression on the UK scene. They did most of their work far away from joint spotlights in South Africa, Germany, Japan and Singapore. When they did come back, they were billed as international stars, which was wholly true. Back at joint, Roy Regal, as he was now known, had a flying start thanks to his work with Marty and Dave Finlay, but he reached a slump, finding himself in the unfortunate position of being Big Daddy's tag team partner. While, as we've seen in the series, it was an endorsement of worth to joint promotions, it was also a dead end because he couldn't learn anything. Having encountered Robbie Brookside and talked his problem through, he made a brave step and called Brian Dixon, asking to move to the then untelevised All-Star group. After an incredulous opening comment, you bloody mad! You're in the main event! Brian offered, a young hero, Brian offered our young hero a chance to go back up north and develop his craft with All-Star's finest. And if you follow this series closely, you will know that All-Star had the best all-round career in wrestling thanks to higher payoffs and a liberated booking regime. So now, the newly named Steve Regal, after AWA World Tag Team Champion Mr. Electricity Steve Regal, moved companies, leaving joint behind him for now. 
He formed a tag team with Robbie Brookside, the Golden Boys. They would be the precursor to the Liverpool lads in their national popularity without the TV exposure. This coincided with All-Star becoming a TV promotion. Then the bookings began to soar, as he could work for Joint and All-Star, and became quite the draw in the UK. All the time he was facing the best wrestlers he could and learning every step of the way. He would wrestle Dave Finley, Mark Rocco, the late Rocky Moran, working five to six nights a week. His natural growth led him on to matches with Dave Taylor, Tony Sinclair, and true heavyweights with a style of their own, based on that skill, pacing, and strength. He got picked up by European promoters for German summer tournaments. The tent tours of La Catch in France also beckoned. All the time learning and putting things together from tape traders, childhood memories from the people he was wrestling, putting matches and ideas together, piece by piece. He was also a smart networker. Dave Taylor, being one of his champions, got a most break at Otto Vance's CWA promotion, which ran the summer tournaments. European wrestling owes Valto Vance and the CWA a great deal. Being a staging post exactly in the middle of the continent, it became a home for every worthy heavyweight to come out of Europe, North America and Japan, at least for a short while. It reached its height of popularity and drawing ability just around this period, with Otto feuding with Rambo, French-Canadian Luc Poirier, who was wrestled as Sniper in the short-lived WWE heel stable for the Truth Commission in the late 90s, and Big Van Vader, full power to German audiences, over the CWA title. The roster of the CWA was massive, with access to his rosters of New Japan and the AWA, it could put together world-class cards. It was difficult not to improve under those circumstances. As the scene in the UK began to slow down, he began to take bookings all over the world, working in India, South Africa, France, and his regular residency in Bremen. He was an in-demand guy, as the guy could have a match with anyone, and considered the peer equal as those he joined in the worldwide accomplishment. Pat Roach, Terry Rudge, Tony Sinclair, David Finlay, Johnny South, David Taylor, Marty Jones. All men who could put together long-form matches and credible accounts themselves as athletes. They knew what the crowd wanted in every town between Tokyo and Preston. He also learned his business manners in the same way, seeing what they were the right things and the wrong things to do. Being road partners with Johnny Saint helped him realise that being polite and well-intentioned and meaning what you said could get you a very long way, and tried to emulate his behaviour in a professional sense. Cyanide Sid Cooper gave him his comedy heel work ethic that would come in handy much later on. By the time wrestling had come away from television in 1998, Steve did not slow down one bit. Touring relentlessly, he travelled the world. By 1992, he was so busy he was in a position to turn work down when Otto called to see if he'd take Steve Wright's place on the CWA house show circuit. Steve Wright, by the way, is featured in nearly every episode of the series, and I should probably write about him at some point. Having spent Christmas till Easter between Egypt, India and Oldham, Steve pondered it before saying yes. The initial two-month trip ended up being seven months which was the way of things. Whilst there, on the advice of former Mid-South employee Rick Rogers, he made a personal handwritten approach to Bill Watts, then booker of WCW. Bill hired him on the strength of the letter and the fact he wouldn't quit the CWA until his agreed length of employment had been reached. Johnny Saint's influence clearly played dividends. His initial phase in WCW was not his best work from his wider watching public's eyes. Having been forced to improvise most of his way through his career, there was somewhat of a culture clash when it coming into TV matches against job or opposition. His usual nightly task of going up to an hour obviously didn't set him up well for TV wrestling, but after being put on the house show circuit where he could stretch his legs, he developed his style one step further, when paired up with wrestlers on WCW roster he could actually go and could tell a story with. Thankfully, there were plenty of them in WCW at the time. That gave him to, this gave him time to rethink his strategy. He was nicely placed in the wrestling world. He was never really out of work in that era, and so had no pressure on himself to improve, should his shot not work out. It was his natural will and competitiveness to be the best wrestler he could be that drove him forward. Channeling the spirit of his heel, Flutchstones, René Lasseter and Simon C. Cooper, as well as the music hall comedians he equally cherished, he came up with the idea of the character 
Lord Stephen Regal, a full-on heel, but used comedy as a way of getting himself over through annoying mannerisms and an inflated ego. He set about carving himself a unique niche, as unique, in fact, as his in-ring wrestling style when compared to his peers in the company. Being the heel meant that he could control the match pace. Being the antagonist also meant he could work the heat. It all of a sudden clicked for him as he developed into this upper mid-card on a permanent basis. And that's where we'll leave Stephen Reader for now. We'll come back to him next week and talk more about his adventures in WCW and the WWE. And back in WCW and the WWE. Thank you for listening to Telling Stories. My name's James Trippany. You can find me on Twitter at Sheriff Lonestar. You can find the show at Trippany Show on Twitter. You can find us on Patreon where you can take the Trippany Show free forever for everyone and Facebook too. Please go listen to and read our sponsors in the Empire magazine new articles coming up soon on that website as well as powerslam.tv Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.